Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 29th, and the news today, as all too often, of course, is, is bleak. Uh, this time, uh, there were reports of terrible atrocities against human rights uh, in Myanmar. The country seems to be on the brink, if not in an actual civil war. Uh, we may get to Myanmar later in today's discussion, but another piece caught my mind. Of course, in the morning, one of the first places I go is uh, the Guardian's uh, football, or what Americans would call soccer website, and rather than getting the scores... Uh, I saw this piece, which was its lead this morning, um, a piece about a, a player I'd never heard of him, actually, called Ram Mawa, who was racially abused as a young footballer. He felt degraded. Um, his origins, he's a, the son of a, a Norwegian mother and a Kenyan Sikh father. But when he was a young player uh, in the changing room, uh, minding his own business, I'm quoting the Guardian piece, a coach said to him, Shouldn't your family own a corner shop? Um, and in the UK, of course, corner shops tend to be owned by uh, people from South Asia, from India, from Pakistan. He took it very personally. And it seems as if it had a rather adverse impact on his career. Uh, and when I was reading that, I wondered to myself, is that an example of a of hate speech, of a hate crime? Or is that the kind of thing that uh, young men of, of, of uh, diverse origins need to put up with. We have someone perhaps on the show today who can answer that. Uh, her name is Caitlin Ring Carson, Carlson, and she's the author of a really nice new book called Hate Speech, uh, which is a short introduction to the debates around hate speech. Um, Caitlin, let's talk about Ram Mawa first. Was that an example of hate speech? Is that the kind of thing that should have uh, should have got the, the coach uh, wrapped on the knuckles or even in a court? Well, I think um, part of what is so difficult about this phenomenon of hate speech is that it's, it's tough to define um, and that it's often subjective. I would say that hate speech is any form of expression that seeks to malign someone based on their fixed identity characteristics. So in this case, race or ethnicity, um, I would say it's right on the border between a microaggression and a, and, and hate speech. Um, it's certainly not appropriate. And we can see from his reaction that it really does have an impact on uh, folks as individuals, uh, as well as I think um, society as a whole. Your definition, Caitlin, of hate speech, I think is quite controversial. I'm not sure everyone will agree. I'm going to put it up and flash it up. Uh, here's your definition. Yeah. Hate speech represents a structural phenomenon in which those in power use verbal assaults and offensive imagery to maintain their preferred position in the existing social order. It's an interesting idea. Does that mean that if you're if you're at the bottom of the social order, you're not capable of hate speech? No, I wouldn't say that. But I sometimes worry that when we think of hate speech, people tend to think only of 
uh, racial, ethnic, uh, misogynistic, homophobic slurs. And I just want people to understand that it is much larger than that. Um, we see all kinds of examples throughout history. I would say you mentioned Myanmar at the top of the show. Uh, I think at least here in the United States, we've had a lot of issues with um, hatred against um, Asian and Pacific Islanders. Um, so when we think about this, this issue of hate speech, I would say it's part of a continuum uh, where at the bottom there are microaggressions, you know, things like hate speech, stereotypes, and then that builds to actual discrimination or bias-motivated violence. And so that definition is really geared at um, informing people of the very real ways that we've seen language used by people to, again, maintain um, their position in the social hierarchy or establish that position. I mean, here in America, you know, we need look no further than um, the treatment of um, African Americans, Native Americans, the things that those members of those groups have been called and the way that they've been characterized have really served to uphold uh, white supremacy in this country. And so, you know, I certainly don't think hate speech is the cause of racism, right? It's much more a symptom of issues like racism or homophobia, but it does play, I think, a real role in maintaining um, social social relationships and power power dynamics both in one of the one, one of the nice things about the book caitlin it's 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 a really short brisk read i read it this morning um but it's not just about the united states uh, you talk uh, in the beginning about the famous incident in or the infamous incident in virginia young men in khaki pants uh, and white polo shirts behaving uh, like Nazis in public, but then you go to Osaka, to Japanese people uh, calling for uh, the death of all Korean people, and then you talk about Myanmar, and then um, Cape Town, and, and, and different kinds of racism there. Um, this is a, a, a global analysis. In overall terms, I know this is a rather stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, is... Is hate speech universal? I mean, does it come from the same place, the same absence of, of heart, of empathy, uh, whether it's in Cape Town or Myanmar or Jerusalem or, uh, or, 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 or Washington, D.C.? I think so. I think, um, and I say this in the book, there's no country or no culture that is immune um, from hate speech. I think part of what's happening on a very visceral level is we want, you know, we're social creatures. We want to feel like a part of a group. And I think by othering or um, talking badly about members of different groups, we reaffirm our position in our own group. Um, and so I think there are some real kind of um, safety or um, social well-being kind of fundamental issues that we're trying to you know, wrestle with. And, and this is one of the ways, unfortunately, that we do that, that we make ourselves feel a part of um, is, is by making others feel less than. Caitlin, um, the book is, is more about what we can, what we should and shouldn't allow when it comes to speech, in, in to, as opposed to actually a, a psychological or cultural or sociological investigation uh, of, free, uh, of, of hate speech itself. 
you begin the book with reference to one of my favorite 19th century thinkers, John Stuart Mill, whose book on liberty laid out really the foundations of uh, modern liberalism. Uh, Mill, of course, famously said that we should be allowed to do anything as long as it doesn't hurt others. We all know the famous phrase, uh, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt us. I'm assuming you don't share that view, that words can't hurt people. No, I don't. I think um, if you've ever had the opportunity to visit the Holocaust Ma Museum in Washington, D.C., there's a really interesting quote on the wall there that said, you know, the Holocaust started with words. And so I do think that um, there's a certain point at which you know, freedom of expression, my ability to express myself freely impacts on your right to human dignity. And I do think that um, it plays a role in harming others, whether that's at an individual level or a societal level. So um, I think it's been really interesting in the last couple of years, the, um, the Journal of the American Medical Association's uh, pediatric journal has come out uh, with a statement from um, several pediatricians talking about the impact uh, racism in the public sphere has on young children of color. Um, we know that it causes um, psychological, emotional harm. Um, but I think on a societal level, it, it continues to feed these, these incidents that cross the line between expression into conduct or action. I mean, we saw that, I think, last week here in the United States with the um, shooting of, of several Asian American women down in Georgia. Um, Do and you so think that there's a clear connection? And, and that of case is still not entirely clear of why, and I don't know whether we can ever come to rational reasons why anyone would just shoot innocent people for no reason. Uh, but um, was that a, a, a free speech issue, this crossover between speech hate speech and violence, uh, you suggest that that's the most dangerous gray area in the book. I do. I think I, I absolutely believe that this process of othering, I mean, again, and it's maybe better to say that I believe it, but his history has unfortunately shown this to be the case. So whether we look at, I mentioned the Holocaust, we can look mm. at the current situation in Myanmar we can look at um, what happened in Rwanda in the mid-90s, but there are all these examples throughout history where we see genocide or bias-motivated violence like what we saw, and we can trace that right back to right um, hate speech, this, this process of othering. Uh, there's a scholar called Alexander Tesis, and he talks about uh, mis-ethnic discourses, the ways that we characterize or dehumanize different mm. groups of people. So when we, we call... Um, in the Holocaust, they referred to Jewish people as rats. Or uh, in the genocide in Rwanda, they referred to the Tutsis as cockroaches. And here in Myanmar, we're seeing them refer to um, the, the Rohingya Muslims as dogs, right? That this process of othering, I really, I truly believe, and I think history has shown us that it dehumanizes people, which is part of what makes violence against others more palatable. Right. How right. And, and, and this, um, this to, to use your word, othering was, of course, mastered by the evil genius of 20th century propaganda, Joseph Goebbels in, 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 in Germany, in terms of his portrayal of the Jews. And as you say, uh, imagery, this was uh, a, a cartoon. A so I'm not sure if we, we should call it a cartoon, 
uh, a, a very distressing uh, image put together by an anti-Semite in Germany in the mid-1930s, March 1935. You're suggesting that this kind of imagery, 1935, of course, there weren't any concentration camps, in some ways led, if not inevitably, but perhaps not surprisingly, to the gas chambers and the deaths of millions of Jews. Right. I think it's at least part of um, the explanation for, again, how do you get regular German citizens to engage or even just simply condone this level of violence against millions and millions of people? Um, I think part of that is by infusing messages like that one, right, of of the inferiority of a, of a certain group into everything from you know, this is clearly a political cartoon. It showed up in newspaper articles. It showed up on the radio. It showed up in children's books, right? Um, and so part of what I talk about in the in the book is really how mass media has been used to disseminate these messages. And that is, again, part of the formula for these incidents of, of bias-motivated violence. The shadow, of course, of Donald Trump and Make America Great, using those words carefully, um, and the violence, the right-wing violence in, in, in Washington, D.C. in January and much of the violence in the Trump administration. As I said, this is the shadow in the book. When you see photos like this of these young or perhaps not so young white thugs with Camp Auschwitz uh, sweatshirts and 6MWE, meaning 6 million wasn't enough, uh, T-shirts. Should this kind of stuff be banned in terms of clothing, uh, Caitlin? Well, I think that's where we start to get into some really tricky questions about freedom of expression. So in the United States, uh, hate speech is fully protected by the First Amendment. And so there's a hesitancy or a concern that having the government intervene um, is dangerous. And and I, I fully support or understand those arguments. Um, I'm not sure I trust the federal government to make decisions on what is or isn't considered hate speech, partially because it's subjective, but we can easily see. And, and there are examples from around the world. I think South Africa is a great one where the best intentions, I think, are in place and laws are established and then they're misused to either silence political dissent or they're used against traditionally marginalized communities, right? So uh, in that instance, white folks are saying that black folks are using hate speech against them. And so um, I worry about federal leg legislation. One of the nice things I think that we've seen in the U.S. And, and across the world really is there's a diminishing social acceptance, I think, for that kind of, of expression and that kind of conduct. So um, I would not be surprised if the gentleman who is wearing that shirt has recently been fired from his job. Uh, At the minimum, example. I hope. Uh, I, right? I, I, would, I would think that's the, the very minimum, these kind of characters. Um, on the one hand, of course, we have the verbal violence on the right. On the other hand, of course, we have, if not the verbal violence of the left, certainly the intense sensitivity about words on the left uh, you wade into this when it comes to hate speech in the universities. You argue that students don't fully embrace uncomfortable learning unless they themselves are comfortable. Now, um, uh, Caitlin, you teach at the University of Seattle, so you're very familiar with these debates about what can and can't be said within the university. 
Um, how prevalent is hate speech within the university? And to what extent um, is the, the so-called cancel culture actually doing away with free speech in the university? So I think um, there's a couple different questions there. I would say in terms of, of hate speech, uh, you're dealing with two different issues. You've got the speech between students and faculty and students and students, but then you've also got these kind of high profile incidences when um, certain speakers who are known to uh, degrade different groups of people. Milo Yiannopoulos is a great one, Ben Shapiro, right? These kind of far right um, speakers who will come to campus um, and, and, and that's clearly what they're there to do. Um, perfect example. Um, so I, I think there's a couple different things going on. I think one of the real pressure points right now is between um, students and faculty. Uh, we've seen a couple different incidents where students feel uncomfortable when faculty, for example, use the N-word, or we've had issues where faculty have refused to use a person's preferred pronouns. I mean, I think these issues are continuing to evolve. Uh, it's really tricky because you're, you're- When you use that word evolve, is that euphemism for ducking the question? No, 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 no. I, 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 um, I think part of what is frustrating or concerning to me is that you have to deal with these intersection issues of academic freedom, but also this is a workplace, right? This is a place where people live and eat and work and play. And so why should, for example, if a boss can't, you know, call a subordinate uh, an ethnic slur, why should a professor, a tenured professor, be able to use that same ethnic slur against a student in class? Um, well, I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone would support that. Ethnic slurs in class were used by professors against students. I mean, uh, the N word or the Y word. Uh, I, I don't think anyone would be in favor of that, are they? But I would argue that the, that the words are used, right? And and I think context is really important, right? I, I personally have been in situations where free speech scholars have said, but I can say this because of free speech, right? Without really acknowledging the impact that has on the students or the other folks in the room. Um, so I, I am in favor, not necessarily of hate speech codes, but of really thinking about what are the rules around discrimination and harassment that exist in workplaces? And do some of those make sense in terms of the conduct between students and teachers? Um, I, I buy that, but aren't, isn't there a danger that we're on the slippery slope to censorship in the university in some areas? Uh, at one point in the book, uh, you... You you lump together Milo Yiannopoulos and Charles Murray. Now, Yiannopoulos, as you suggested, is just a, a right-wing troll, a racist, a troublemaker. But Charles Murray, whether you like him or not, is a serious scholar. His book, The Bell Curve, is offensive to many people. Uh, but it was a serious publication. At, at what point do we have to accept that somebody like Murray has the right to speak at a university. I know he's been a lightning rod for a lot of controversies. I think there was some violence at one college on the East Coast uh, in, in association mm -hmm. with Murray. Yeah, I struggle with somebody like Murray because I think just because we're talking about the humanities or social sciences doesn't mean that there aren't certain ideas that have been fully disproven, for example, 
this suggestion that there are different levels of intelligence uh, among people of different races, which is what he's arguing. And so, well, but I think to, I, I'm, I don't want to defend Murray. I don't want the last person to defend him. But I think if he was on the show, he would suggest he isn't. The point is that books are often complicated and that it's easy to take out messages about books if you don't like it and generalize. At what point do we have to sort of draw the line and say, I don't like Murray? Some people might consider his work to be hateful, but we have to accept that he has a right to speak at the university. Well, I think that's the big question. Why I personally don't see the value in handing someone like him a, a microphone or amplifying that voice. I think there's a big difference between reading his work in class and critiquing it as a class in, a, in an academic environment and then creating a platform for him to come and speak to hundreds of students. Now, all that said, I think it's up to the students, right? Uh, the First Amendment absolutely protects students' right to invite different campus, or excuse me, in, invite different speakers to campus. Um, and so I'm certainly not suggesting that we change that. I just question the value of doing something like that and would encourage those students that invite those speakers to really think about, again, who they want to amplify, who they want to hand a microphone to. As a certain a real quality, I think, to our culture. On the one hand, universities have become increasingly, shall we say, strict areas when it comes to free speech. On the other hand, of course, we have social media, the Wild West, the wildest of Wild Wests. Uh, quoting you, you say, in recent decades, hate speech has found a new place to proliferate social media. And, 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 and the last part of the book is an excellent discussion on the rights and wrongs of hate speech on or, or, or hateful speech on social media. How much is social media, um, Caitlin, uh, how profoundly different is it from the age, for example, of Goebbels? Or is it just the digital version of, of, of Goebbels? Uh, you have some, um, you have a wonderful uh, text, well, it's not so wonderful, of, uh, of two people on social media talking about um, deporting all Muslims. Uh, what's different about social media when it comes to hate speech? Well, I think part of at least the difference I would point out between Goebbels and, and the hate speech surrounding the um, Holocaust is those were more authoritative sources, right? So when something is on the radio or a news organization picks it up, it might be different than you or I saying something. But the tricky part about social media is we have essentially, just like what we were talking about earlier, we've handed everybody a microphone. Um, and there is no necessarily uh, expertise required for, for certain voices to be amplified. And so I think it, um, it also really normalizes this kind of expression. There are places online that people can go and meet other like-minded folks um, with complete anonymity. With complete it's like, it's like the, the equivalent of public toilets. Uh, right, right, right. Well, or I think about like who would be willing back in the 60s in the United States to physically attend a Klan meeting, right? That that takes a certain level of, of commitment to racial hatred. It's much, much easier to hop on a certain subreddit um, and read through what people are saying and, and, and um, you know, kind of stay in the shadows and not really be fully participating, but at least be observing. And so I do think that that social media on on one hand, there are so many amazing things about this technology. 
Uh, I, I love it for connecting with folks or, you know, TikTok is so much creativity. Like there's some and really- This is being streamed stuff. live on Twitter. So we is are it, actually yeah, exactly. on social media. Amazing, right? So um, I get frustrated when people say, oh, well, if you don't like it, just log off. I don't really think that's a solution. Um, but I do think what we have are, you know, multi-billion dollar companies with the capability to do more um, and a better job. And I will say, I think the algorithms are improving. I think they have worked to hire more human content moderators. I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, but this this is an issue. And, and again, I, I feel like given the amount of revenue being generated, um, we have to demand as users uh, that, that social media companies do more to eradicate this kind of speech because it can, I think it can play a role in, in radicalizing um, different folks. And, and we've seen that, right? We've seen where uh, mass shooters here in the United States have posted manifestos to sites like Gab or 8chan, um, Parler now. Um, mm. you know, Facebook. Well, I want to get on to Parler. You, yeah. And the, um, the section on social media, I think, is very good. You do have, a, I think, a very, a, a very balanced, which is unusual these days, section on, on Twitter and particularly Facebook. You're neither a Facebook defender nor hater. You suggest that social media organizations are sovereign entities able to govern expression on their platforms in whatever way they feel is in the best interests of their user, their advertisers, and their investors, which is all very well. But aren't you then... Um, providing the green light for networks, hate networks like Parler to legitimately exist online? Well, I think there's a, a big question in this country about Section 230 and whether we right. choose to revise that. So as as it stands now, they are free to do whatever. Are you in favor of Section 230? I mean, you do away with it, then, then all these platforms, whether it's Parler, Twitter, Facebook, they're all vulnerable. I do think that um, there's a lot of value in Section 230. I think I would be willing to entertain nuanced, uh, intentional revisions. So things that deal with good actors. Um, you know, the Safe Tech Act is in front of Congress right now. I'm not sure that's, uh, again, nuanced or detailed enough to really get at these issues. So I do think there are places and situations where um, social media companies should be held accountable for what users do on their site. Um, I'm talking about extreme online harassment. Uh, the Herrick v. Grinder case is one that I can can easily point to to say, you know, Grinder should have done more and should have been held liable for how their product was essentially misused. Um, but I think we have to be very careful as we tread down that that path um, to make sure that we still have a, a, a robust, free, open internet um, like we've had in the past. I'm always curious when people use the word robust, Caitlin. That usually is a very um, ambivalent word. People, uh, The one area you talk about transparency, and the one area you're not in favor of transparency and accountability is when it comes to individuals. You say that people need anonymity. Uh, you, you suggest, and, and of course you're right in some ways, that networks like WikiLeaks, which are important, require uh, anonymity uh, in terms of protection from the law. But ultimately, aren't we all responsible? And isn't one way to make us responsible trying to take away as much anonymity as we possibly can, minimalizing anonymity so that people, uh, if people are going to make hateful remarks, at least we know who they are? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and 
I think in the context of press freedom, I'm talking about, yes, there are benefits to anonymity, but later in the conclusion of the book, I actually say that I think one of the potential solutions would be to require people to use their real name or real identification online. I think that would change a lot of people's online behavior if it were, were tied to their real identity. And so um, I, I recognize the value of anonymity, but I do not think that we necessarily need anonymity, anonymity, excuse me, on Facebook or Twitter. Um, I don't, I don't know that the value of that is outweighed um, by the potential drawbacks. Caitlin, you're, you argue very forcefully and convincingly that we shouldn't shut the internet down. But finally, perhaps the one thing that needs to be shut down is America, because as you suggest, in the United States, the right to free expression is revered above all else. Um, and the book is quite comparative. You, uh, as I said, you have some, some, some excellent sections. We haven't had time, uh, sorry, to, to get into it on, um, on Myanmar. You have an excellent section on Canada and Germany. Canada and Germany in particular come out as, as paragons, I think, of sensibility in contrast to America. Is the problem really with hate speech, America? No, I I would certainly never suggest that uh, what needs to change. I'm teasing you, but right, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm setting um, you up. But here. I will say, and, and it's interesting. So there's a scholar, Marianne Franks, who I, I cite in the book and I think has done some excellent work. I think we do in the United States place the right to free expression of, above other rights like the right to equal protection under the law or the right to human dignity, which we really don't even recognize in our constitution, whereas many other countries do. I think when it comes to free expression, we're constantly talking about a balancing act, right? And in the United States, we tend to place the right to free expression above all else. And that choice has consequences. And I argue in the book, and this is really, again, drawing off the work of Marianne Franks, that you know that commitment to the First Amendment, to free expression without exception, um, has has worked to uphold white male supremacy, right? There are inst countless instances where more expression is actually damaging to the political participation or livelihood of women and people of color. And yet we continue to choose choose that time and time again. And so I think moving forward in the future, we really need to think deeply about how we, uh, protect free expression, but also recognize rights, like I said, like equal protection under the law or like human dignity. Um, and I think there are ways to do that. I'm, as I said earlier, I'm not somebody who necessarily thinks um, the government should be in a position to determine what is or isn't hate speech. But I do think we have really effective uh, civil procedures, tort laws in this country, right? We're the most litigious society in the world. Um, the fact that you can't necessarily sue someone for uh, or successfully sue someone for intentional infliction of emotional harm around uh, speech or conduct like this, I, I find problematic. And so I recommend that we we explore some of these existing tort laws um, to sue, much like we allow people to sue for defamation, injury to reputation. Why would we not recognize the injury of the harm caused by hate speech? Well, that's great stuff. Hate speech. I've got it here. I just read it. Excellent book from... Uh, from Caitlin Ring Carlson, a distinguished academic in, in Seattle, and you're in Seattle at the moment, uh, Caitlin. In addition to your uh, excellent new book, what else should people be reading in these strange times where we're all stuck inside still? Yeah, so I, I referenced Marianne Franks a couple times, so I would highly recommend, if you haven't already, uh, this book, The Cult of the Constitution, where she really looks at 
America's commitment to both the First and Second Amendments um, and the impact that has had on all kinds of elements of life. I'm also, you know, I'm a big fiction reader. And so I think one of the things for me that's been really helpful during the pandemic is just to, you know, kick back with a good book. Last night I finished uh, The Mermaid of Jeju, uh, which is by Sumi Han, um, and it's about the Hyenyo um mermaid, or I shouldn't say mermaid, excuse me, uh, about the women divers uh, on the island of Jeju and um, their role in uh, the Korean War. And it's a story about a couple of characters during that time and then their their life here in America. So I, I highly recommend that as well. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much. Wonderful interview. Excellent book. Great stuff. Controversial, interesting, edifying, the opposite of hate speech. Keep well, and we'll have you on the show again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Andrew. Take care.